Hey guys, welcome back. We are live. We are live on Facebook. We are live on YouTube. We are live on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Thank you guys for joining us. Um, I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a great episode. If you're like me, you love fitness, you love mindset, you love talking about mental health, this is the show that you're going to want to listen to. My friend Adam is going to be dropping fire. So, guys, I just want to thank our sponsors. First of all, if you guys are veterans and you want to start your own business, definitely check out OVF, Operation Veteran Freedom. Talk talk to Christopher and Liam. They actually helped launch my business, um, which I'm doing right now and doing really well at. They actually helped me, and they actually helped me launch this, which is my new Vertical Momentum Coffee, which is not your mother's coffee, is ass-kicking coffee. And as you guys know, whatever I do, I make no money on. So all my proceeds go to help Project Die Hard 22 um, to help veterans struggling with homelessness and mental health issues. So if you guys love coffee, check it out. I'll be dropping a link. But guys, this is going to be a great episode. Make sure you share it. Make sure you're hearted and leave comments so we know you're listening. Adam, my brother, what's going on? Well, I'll tell you what, the uh, the the coffee that you have there, that's going to be part of my new pre-workout. So I appreciate you, you bringing that on. Uh, <laughs> but thanks for having me on. I'm really thrilled to be here. I appreciate it. So uh, talk to us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what kind of little boy was Adam? Absolutely. Well, I was uh, I was a somewhat of a, a shy awkward boy. Some would call me a spaz. Some would still call me a spaz, I'm sure. But um, uh, yeah, I grew up in in a town called Dana Point in California, which is uh, just in Southern California, right smack dab in the middle between San Diego and Los Angeles. It's a little surf town, was a little surf town. Uh, at the time, it was pretty secluded. Uh, my parents raised me and um, uh, yeah, I went to school down there and, and mostly lived out that down there until around college. I was, you know, somewhat of a, you know, I'd say I'd, I'd had, a, I'd, I'd say I'd had a, have a really normal childhood from, you know, my parents were, uh, you know, together, they were great parents. They, they have been great, great parents and they've, uh, uh, they really raised me well to do what's right and everything like that. But as I was growing up, I just had this budding, you know, insecurity about me, this insecurity that I was never really good enough, really wasn't you know, part of the social scene is social anxiety that I didn't know really what it was. And, uh, you know, as I grew up and I went into to high school, I started to find a little bit more of my my own, uh, started to get really into music and discover that when I got disciplined with music, I, you know, really excelled at it. And um, uh, but really shied away from a lot of the sports, never really got good at the now, sports. First of all, I want to yeah. hop back real quick. Sure. Uh, because I am the world's okayest guitar player. So what kind of music were you into? So I played the cello. It was the epitome of cool in, in high school. Oh, yeah. yeah. Chicks, <laughs> chicks love the cello player. Absolutely. I was, it was, yeah. No, it was, uh, uh, yeah, so I played the cello and I ended up getting pretty good. And I realized that's probably, I wasn't, great academically. So I realized that was probably my only ticket into college. So I got really intense about that. And, be, you know, at that time, before I even really knew it, that was kind of the the budding of, of knowing that when I focused on something and I practiced discipline, 
I could really achieve it and, and get to something I wanted when I had a strong enough goal and a strong enough desire. And, um, yeah, so that was kind of the path I took in high school. Never really good at any sports or, and tried playing baseball. I was third string bench warmer to a bunch of, uh, of, uh, um, uh, of other athletes who ended up going 0 and 10 that season. So yeah, that's, that tells you how good of a baseball player I was. <laughs> so now what college did you decide on? I went to the university of California in Santa Barbara. I could definitely choose worst colleges. Oh, the, right struggle on the, was, the struggle was real, right? Right, right. So that was, uh, uh, yeah, it, it was essentially the perfect environment for a budding alcoholic like myself to, uh, venture into abusing that kind of substance. Um, but it was, it was a beautiful campus. I mean, you couldn't get any better. You couldn't get any more distractions than, you know, what, what we were facing in the middle of, uh, coastal California. So now for me, I've been clean and sober. I just celebrated 33 years on new year's Eve. Wow. Uh, how did alcohol and school go together? The alcohol in school did not go well together, <laughs> but, um, but alcohol and my anxiety went really well together at that time. Um, when I, I first, I had my first drink when I was probably about 17 years old, I was visiting the campus for the first time. And that was when I decided to go there. I went to a, a party on Del Playa, which was, is the main, uh, you know, street there that where all the parties happen in Santa Barbara at, at UC Santa Barbara. And, I remember having, you know, this disgusting keg beer, you know, but for me, it was my first sip and as gross as it tasted, the feeling that it gave me was so at the moment, it was, uh, it felt empowering. And I know looking back, obviously it wasn't, but it was manipulatively empowering. It was, it was deceptively empowering to the extent that I was now no longer socially awkward. I could, I could talk to the opposite sex and not be intimidated about, you know, asking them out or doing things like that. It, it all of a sudden became this elixir that, you know, helped me uh, and it just felt good. And that first experience with alcohol was, uh, you know, I had three beers, I think, or something along those lines. I had a, I had a nice little buzz. Then I went home for the evening with no consequences and everything felt normal. I had no reason at that time to believe that I would be a problem drinker. But in my mind, it was already starting to spin like, wow, this is, you know, this is great. This is what I want to have happen in my in my entire college experience. Now, you know, because I, I had my first drink at 12 mm -hmm. and by the age of 13, I was a full blown alcoholic. But for me, like you're like you're telling my story, you know, like when I first the first minute I had my beer or whatever I was drinking out of my mom's liquor cabinet. I was Richard, but as soon as I had my first drink, I became Rick. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like I've had all those superpowers. I could talk to everybody. I had no inhibitions. I was I had no fear. So, I, you know, I, but I I totally get it. But eventually, you know, the fun times would stop. Where like my friends, you know, they'd be like, "All right, you know, it's Sunday. We're getting ready for school or work," and I'm like what do you mean? You know? So for right. me, you know, the fun times never stopped until they stopped being fun. Mm. You know, that's so relatable to me too, because I, I remember that specifically like on a Sunday where I'd be like, yeah, let's go out and party. Let's have a good time. And then people were like responsible and stuff. And I was like, where's this coming from? 
<laughs> you know, we're supposed to be having fun. This is supposed to be college. And and while it was fun at the very beginning, maybe for the first few months, I didn't immediately slip into these uh, really horrible behaviors or anything like that. But gradually over time, as, as they say, it became drinking became less fun and became, you know, it became fun with problems. Like, you know, I would suddenly like I would be stopped for holding a beer outside my apartment and get busted for a minor in possession. Well, that's a one off, you know, no big deal. Or I would, you know, black out at one point because I drank too much. Well, that was a little bit too much. Maybe I won't do that next time. But then, it, you know, it would gradually become, you know, so fun with problems. But then it just became problems. And by my third year of college, it was it was just so debilitating. Um, and there's a chicken or the egg argument here of, uh, of, of what came first, because I'd mentioned earlier when I was in high school that I had that social awkwardness that was like a budding anxiety that was always somewhere below the surface, but I didn't know what it was. And by the time I turned about 20, um, I had my first full-blown panic attack in college and seemingly without notice, I, I was just studying for an organic chemistry exam, which I guess is anxiety inducing enough. I mean, that's, scary but but i uh i remember that i just felt this intense reality enter my brain that because i was with a a girl um that i didn't know or we weren't tested for hiv that all of a sudden i i, I knew with absolute certainty that i was hiv positive now of course i wasn't but that irrational fear just entered my mind and it came with such certainty and such power that and even as, as ridiculous as it sounds, it paralyzed me. And I remember just getting into the fetal position on the ground and 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 crying because I was just I was I was alone and it was so certain and there was so much dread. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that was, but it would it would stick with me for a long time. And I realized at that point, after you know, at that time at that point, the drinking became a stronger source of relief for me because it it it, it ended those panic attacks. Um, and that, that was the nature of where my panic attacks would come from. They would come from this place of irrational fear and they would just come on without notice and, and, uh, and, and continue on throughout my college life. So now, cause you know, for me, I mean, it, no, no matter how old you get, you can still get panic attacks or, and you can still have panics, you know, and it can last months. Um, sure. even adult you know i'm 53 and last year i i thought i was going through a mental uh, going through a health scare and i i would have put myself in the i had my funeral planned already <laughs> until thank god they said no there's nothing wrong with you but um so i i'm totally feeling that so now what happened when you got out of college so when i got out of college i so i continued drinking and i really graduated by the skin of my teeth i was on uh academic probation pretty frequently. I switched majors a lot. I started as a music major pretty quickly, moved over to undeclared because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I was pretty much lost. I just thought I had to be in college. And I ended up graduating with a psychology degree because that was where my credits were essentially leading me. And I, it would get me out of there as quick as I could. Uh, and after college, I start. I went into the family business to start working with, uh, uh, with the family business. We manufacture and distribute industrial chemicals um, for many of the Western states. Uh, and, and I continued to essentially um, 
yeah, I continued to drink to monitor my anxiety. But my goal at that point, once I finished college, was really to be more functional and constantly prove to myself that I didn't have a problem, meaning I would set a large number of rules for myself, not going to drink uh, on the weekdays because it's work nights, you know, and things like that. I'm not, I'm only going to drink on the weekends. I'm not going to drink before 5 p.m. I was like, I was like an alcoholic gremlin, like with all these rules of you know, trying to, uh, trying to manage that. And, uh, and of course, as you know, uh, as you're aware, it's, it just, it became it, as, as functional as I tried to be, it just became overwhelmingly stressful to continue to try and manage that. And my wife, uh, who was then my girlfriend, you know, would occasionally give me the ultimatums of saying, you know, stop, stop drinking or I'm going to leave. And she did that a number of times. And a number of times I, I would stop, let the heat come off and the anxiety and the, the, the uh, panic would become so overwhelming again. And I would manipulate my way back into a drink with her. Um, and uh, that's, that's the cycle that just continued for, for a very long time. Um, yeah. And then you, each time you had one, you were just off to the, off to the races. Off to the races. Yeah. It would be, uh, it, it would get progressively worse every time too, where to the extent where if, uh, you know, on the weekends I would drink into a blackout. And of course now, instead of resolving my anxiety, I had been drinking for so long to resolve my anxiety that when I would come to in the morning, the anxiety would be every single day and with such intensity because I was so shameful of the person that I was, uh, that, uh, that I was just trying to manage this life that wasn't really a life of any kind of balance whatsoever. And, uh, and that kind of pain, that kind of shame was, was with me for almost a decade as I was, as I was drinking, but that's, as I, that's how I kind of managed myself over the course of those, those years. Now for me, as I talk about in my, my new book that I just dropped, um, it came out, I re-released it today with some bonuses, but I can actually pinpoint when I hit rock bottom, when I was actually, you know, I, I just got away with not going to jail for five years for grand larceny mm -hmm. sitting in the bottom out of bottom of the church drinking nasty coffee hungover drinking eating nasty cookies and these because i'm 20 years old and there's these 50 60 year old guys who are just saying sit down shut up and listen and i was at, at the complete bottom that was that was my bottom so talk to us about the day you hit your bottom. I hit rock bottom because I became something that I absolutely detested. And one of those rules that I was talking about that I, that I shared with you earlier that I would never break was drinking and driving. That to me was crossing a line that was just so far beyond. And based on you know what my belief system was, is that people who chose to drink, drink and drive just didn't care about anybody else's life. And, you know, went out and, and did that. So I got in the car in a blackout and I, I uh, was driving, coming back home from uh, surfing uh, one morning. And that's how bad it was. It was this was in the morning um, and I was still drunk the night from the night before. Um, and I turned through a red light and hit another car and got into, into a DUI accident. And I came to in the back of a police car. Uh, with, you know, 
it was pretty close to home. So neighbors were all surrounding me, um, you know, looking at me as I was in the back of a police car and doing all the sobriety tests that day and knowing that I would fail. I was even just resigning myself, just take me to jail. I mean, you know, obviously I'm not, you know, obviously I'm not sober here and sitting in the jail cell, just wondering what had happened, trying to piece together that morning and just feelings. I, I can't describe the shame that I had over that experience of becoming something that I absolutely detested. And thank God that nobody was hurt because this would be a different, uh, things would be much different today. I mean, I wouldn't be here today. Um, and, um, it's, that was my rock bottom wanting to sitting in the jail cell, trying to think of a way out that I could wishing that God would just give me a heart attack at that moment so that I could just die easily. It's too much of a coward to kill myself. And you know, that that's how I felt at that time. But fortunately, I believe that I had something of, you know, just a spiritual intervention at that time where my mind instead shifted to, I have a choice here. I have a choice to continue down this path, this choice that I thought I didn't have this, this idea that I, I could never get sober or I could never get the help. I'd been in AA, but I never related to people. And I'd always just, you know, I'd never hit that point where it would, it, it was just speaking to me yet, that this was that point where I was just like, I'm going to go in and exactly as you say, I'm going to sit down, shut up, listen and do everything that they tell me because, and, and not make any of these lousy excuses that I used to make, which is, well, I got to get home to my family for dinner. I have to, you know, I have to, uh, 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 I have to work in the morning, so I can't be here. All I can't go to coffee with you guys tonight because of, of this. No, this getting sober was now the most important thing in my life, more important than my family, more important than my than, than anything else, because without it, I was a danger not only to myself anymore. I, if I was a danger to myself, I'm fine with that. I was fine with that. But I was a danger to others, and I was something that I would never want to be again. And I did not want to be that anymore. So that brought me into the rooms of AA and for, you know, those first couple of years, I went to AA every single day. Now me, I, I think like I hit something like I was supposed to go to 90 court order days. I hit like 300 in a row or something stupid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, one thing, you know, like I put out in my book is now I'm starting to do personal coaching and I tell people, you know, I can turn your life around in 90 days, but it's going to take work, you know, and for me, you know, I love all the steps. I love every one of the steps. They work great. Um, I believe in God. I'm a, I'm a believer. So for me, I didn't have a problem with that, but I think the three most important, you know, uh, parts of the steps are, you know, I got to tell everybody, I, I'll, I'll, I'll get you, I'll change your life, help you change your life, but you got to do three things. First, you have to write down everybody you hurt and attempt to make amends because obviously you can't make amends to everybody. Some people are no longer here and, you know, but second of all, you know, you have to write all the people that hurt you and forgive them. But the third thing I find is the hardest is forgiving yourself, you know, because like for me, I think of, you know, like if you're running on a treadmill, but you're constantly throwing stuff in a rucksack. Eventually you're not going to be able to run anymore. 
Mm-hmm. But I think once you get, you know, start for adding forgiveness into your life, I think is when you can start pulling the rocks out of the rucksack and you become free. So what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a, I think that's a great way of looking at it. Forgiving, you know, forgiving myself. I mean, the source of my shame, I, I hit the rock bottom of shame at that moment. And I even had, you know, the sense of, because I, I, even at that time I was going to, to therapy and my therapist was talking about this trauma that I had experienced, you know, all this trauma. And I would always, you know, as, as a veteran yourself, I would always feel ashamed about that because I didn't deserve to have that kind of trauma. I, I didn't even feel like I deserved that because I hadn't been through anything. I had a fine childhood. I had all of these things, but I didn't realize. And, and it took, you know, years of therapy and, and all this to realize that I have a severe anxiety disorder that, you know, that leads me down a lot of these paths and is a source of trauma for me and that we all deal with some sense of trauma in our lives. And despite comparisons to other people or, or these kinds of things, which I did far too much of, I, you know, I had that as well. And I had to, I had to own that and owning that, that, that trauma in my own life, uh, you know, did, serve as as something of an inventory to start that process of forgive of forgiveness and then learning to take care of myself beyond that to in, in going to aa and doing the things that i needed to do to uh to live the life that i deserved uh because we all deserve the opportunity for a good life uh that was you know the beginning of the beginnings of the forgiveness and by no means am I ever perfect at it. I mean, mentioning it, I, I had a panic attack just last week, but thank you know, thank God I, I now have the tools to kind of work with them and, and and work through it and understand it a little bit more rather than having to pick up a drink today and, and deal but, with it. So. And you know, I think a lot of people don't realize living a sober life, it's a lot harder than living a regular life. Mm-hmm. You know, like if my wife has a hard day, uh, like I said, I got 33 years clean. I have wine downstairs. I've got liquor. I don't even care about it. But, you know, she can come back home, have a twist, you know, have a twisted tea and relax. You know, I have friends, they get they get stressed out at work. They go home, they pop a Xanax. Where us, we're like, what do I do? Do I eat? You know, to overcome those those things, because you can't just have a drink. You can't (laughs) pop a pill or like a lot of people are taking CBD. You know, you can't do that stuff. When you're living a sober life, and I'm and I'm sure dealing with anxiety, that must have been a lot harder harder when you first got sober to deal with. Yeah, it was. I mean, my bottom was so bad that I was. It was almost uh, something of a, of. I I I'd hate to say um, I hate to put it this way because it, it's it's such a terrible event that led to my sobriety. But when I look back at the miracle that it was on on the on the sh- the the way it shifted my mindset into becoming a new person i wouldn't want to have it any other way because when i got into sobriety i was so all in that my goal at that point was i the the only thing i was really afraid of was my own mind taking me back out so i was just so drawn in i immediately went in just like got a sponsor did the did the things did, did the steps went through all 12 made sure i got through the fourth step because that was I was the epitome of the one, two, three waltz, you know? <laughs> so, um, um, so yeah, just, just doing, doing all of those things. And, and then 
you know, just immersing myself in the community because I think community is so important to anything we do. Even as I, I evolved kind of beyond that, uh, that next step, I think right now, when I look at the hard situations in my life and I've, I've been through more difficult challenges in my life sober than I was when I was drinking, um, especially more recently. But the thing is, is, is that every time I get through those things without having to have a drink and I don't, I don't have the desire to do that today in any of those situations, you know, it, it kind of strengthens that, that element of it. And I also know that I have new outlets for that fitness and health, for example, you know, um, I, I know we, we want to look at our obsessions as bad things, but if we're obsessive in our personalities, sometimes having a channel for that is, is good because we're going to have an obsession about something. You know, if we're getting sober, a lot of times we replace that obsession with the obsession of going to AA or getting, getting into recovery that helps us recover. You know, if we're getting into fitness, getting into that obsessive fitness is, is a way to do that. I remember one of the, the uh, things that a lot of the elders told me, told me in uh, uh, my first year of sobriety was don't make any, don't make any major life changes until your first year of sobriety. And what I heard at that point was when you hit a year of sobriety, make a major life change because <laughs> that's how my brain works. And that's when I started, you know, pursuing more fitness avenues and getting into that. Well, a lot of people, you know, cause I've, if you've, and no, if you guys are watching, never been to an AA meeting, go to an open meeting. You will see people sucking down coffee, eating cake and cookies <laughs> because, you know, you know, your brain uses the same, um, some of the brain, same brain waves that uses sugar that uses alcohol and, and drugs. So a lot of people, once they quit that um, alcohol, they still have the sugar cravings. Mm -hmm. And that's when you, sometimes you'll see somebody gain 50 pounds in the first year, you know, after they get sober because they're still having the sugar craving and they're not realizing, you know, well, I used to drink a case of beer a day. Well, you think of all the sugar that had in it, your body yeah. craving sugar, you know? Right. So, yeah, that, that was certainly the case for me. I mean, I, I went straight to eating. That, that was, I mean, when I was in a, I mean, I was, I, I took up, uh, I mean, I was, I got, I became a heavier smoker too, because I knew that's where all the AA people hang, hung out. So I was like, all right, I got to smoke too, so I can get more reversed. And, you know, so I started getting back into that and a little bit more. And so for that, that year, that first year, yeah, I was getting, healthier from the mindset perspective and more empowered there and, and, and more belief systems, but definitely not healthier from the physical standpoint. It was, uh, that was pretty bad. No, I still love going to AA meetings. It's, but you know, uh, for me, I only go to men's meetings because mm -hmm. I don't want to do drama. I don't, <laughs> you know, you see all these people in AA and a 13 step and you're like, bro, <laughs> you both got two weeks clean. What do mm -hmm. you do? dating anybody you know what i mean so i i go to men's meetings but i also find that if you go to the same meeting you'll see the same people you know who's going to talk next and and you find out all right you're not drinking but you don't have a job you don't have a career you don't have a wife you don't have a family you're not going anywhere so all you're doing is not drinking what kind of life is that and I think a lot of people, when you know, young people, if they go to a meetings, they're like, "Man, if this is all sobriety has, this really sucks." 
<laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. So, you know, now talk to us about, okay, you, you got a couple years under your belt. You started getting healthy. How did you start to reinvent and um, to reinvent your life? How did you start to get healthy? Because you can't just, I tell everybody, you can't just go run a, a marathon the first day. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah. you know, we all, like I worked with GNC for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Everybody, God knows, January 2nd, we're going to do like $10,000 worth of business. <laughs> Everybody's going to come in and buy everything. Yeah. And then in March, just like crickets. You know what I mean? Right, right. So yeah. how the person, especially like, you know, like my my average listener is between 29 and 44, getting out of the military, out of shape, um, but want to get healthy again. Not, you know, not worried about the bodybuilding crap, but mm-hmm. just want to have functional muscle. How do you start? getting healthy again that's a it's a great question it's something that i feel with a lot because of my personality of you know and 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 because of the way our fitness industry is structured you know it's it's a lot of like 90 day programs of getting like all this intense kind of things and i was buying into that kind of stuff of just like all right i'm completely unhealthy now but i want to get fit 90 days sounds like a great plan so i'm just gonna you know pump iron and do all this kind of stuff then i'd injure myself so I ended up actually injuring myself uh, to the point where I had to have surgery. And with a year of sobriety, I was in bed with a uh, recovering from a shoulder surgery where I torn a labrum of trying to do some aggressive stuff. And, uh, you know, at that time I was, again, a year sober. And so I was really contemplating that idea of, you know, how do I get healthy and fit? I think for anybody that's, that's just getting started, for me, it was, it was something of a, uh, a God thing. Because being in that state, I was told by my doctor, well, you can't do anything intense, you know, for like six months and you have to start slow. So I was almost forced into starting slow. So I couldn't do my normal, you know, routine. So I had to research uh, how to how to kind of get into that. So um, I actually remember because my mindset had shifted a bit into this 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 perspective of, um, you know, the, this, this empowered perspective of the, my, of my mindset. And I'm sorry if I'm getting off track here. I'll, I'll no, this is, this is, a, <laughs> no, I'm actually really, really interested in it because I'm thinking, because as I'm thinking, as you're talking, I'm thinking, I know at least, at least 20 people that and now Andy Frisella, I love you. I love the MF CEO project, but I don't see a lot of people successfully doing 75 hard because it's, yeah hard yeah you're doing it twice you know working out twice a day so i'm kind of thinking what you're talking about is oh the all these people that started all of a sudden having torn labrums back issues knees and then they got to start from day one again and they quit yeah i and i'm with you on that i mean i think there's such great intentions with programs like that there's such good intentions of wanting to get people healthy and fit but i think people especially in the fitness industry who are, who are immersed in this idea of, you know, of always having been fit or, or healthy and, and not having that beginner mindset, you know, miss that whole point of, Hey, what if we did 90 easy instead of 75 hard? Like what if we did 90 days of just aerobic heart rate training, you would build such a strong foundation of fitness that on top of that, you could build whatever you want. And you're not injured. You're stronger. You you've built good form because you've started slowly, and you've built this amazing patience. I 
I found that 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 kind of training was such a great supplement to sobriety because it 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 promoted that sense of acceptance of patience of accomplishment of growth that we're all looking for that when when we get into that kind of activity so so when I when I was you know sitting on the laying in bed you know recovering from that shoulder surgery and contemplating where I was at of course because I was immobile I wanted to be mobile and because of the shift in mindset of doing something that I never thought that I could do, which was get sober. Uh, my mindset, my, my mindset had shifted from, I can't constantly saying, I can't do things. I can't do that to what if I remembered at that point, this, this point I had maybe a decade earlier where I was watching the Ironman world championship on television. I was watching, you know, the NBC broadcast, which is all full slow motion, these guys, you know, crossing the finish line and all of these seemingly normal people doing this amazing thing, swimming 2.4 miles, uh, biking 112 miles, running a full marathon all in one day. And then uh, and then they finish with a smile on their face and it's on the island of Hawaii. How much better can you get? My, my first thought about that when I saw that was, oh, my gosh, that would be amazing. And then my immediate second thought was, you can't do that. You're, you're a smoker, you're a drinker, you're, you're out of shape, you're this, you're that. All of that, but that mindset had, said it shifted, you know, a decade later when I was laying in that bed, when I was a year sober, when I was told you got to wait a year before you make major life changes. Well, what major, what more major life change can you make than becoming an Ironman triathlete? And at that point I was asking, what if? So I signed up for an Ironman with my still my shoulder sling, all this kind of stuff a year to happen a year later. And then I had to figure it out. And I realized that the way that most of those athletes were training, uh, that a lot of the successful athletes, specifically Mark Allen, who was you know world championship yeah. six, champion six times over, mm-hmm. uh, were training with this specific heart rate training called the Maffetone method. Yep. And I was so just reading about it, I was like, wow, I was just so intrigued by it. But I was also afraid of it because I was like, I know I can't keep my heart rate that low. But now I'm intrigued. And I know I should lean into some of these things I'm afraid of. So I started started practicing it and started going really, really slow. I mean, ridiculously slow, running at a 13-minute mile or, you know, just biking, spinning so slow that if, I, if I'd stop pedaling, I'd fall over. Um, you know, and, and so I started training like that. And gradually, over the course of time, because of consistency, because of discipline, I would get faster under those under that heart rate. And, uh, and, and that to me, without knowing it at the time was, became the foundation of, of what would be the most, you know, I think the most effective beginner training program that could, that could, uh, that anyone could, uh, uh, put out there to build that foundation of fitness. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, for me, um, sometimes you even got to get even simpler than that. You know, sometimes you just like, I know when I go to the grocery store, I parked all the way at the end, you know, like today it was like 14 degrees. But I'm like, <laughs> Even if I just get 30 extra steps in a day, you know, whatever it is, if I can get it in, it's, you know, you lap everybody that's sitting on the couch. Absolutely. Yeah. You and know? it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah. Cause, cause I living in California in Southern California, where it never gets below 60 degrees, everybody's fighting for that front parking space and nobody's parked at the end. I mean, even there, that psychology is in there, but yeah, that's a great example. And you know, it's funny. Like I live here in New Jersey and there's a gym 
like five minutes from my house and everybody's fighting for the parking <laughs> so they can go walk on the treadmill. And you're like, you're like, when you really think about it, you're like, did I just see that? <laughs> you know? It's like a Farsight cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, I think, you know, for me, I think like my friend, now he wrote a book. Um, his name is James Clear. He wrote a book called Atomic Habits. Love that book. You know, and he talks about how, you know, you don't have to, to do 10% better every day. If you can just get that 1% better every day and then actually, um, you know, when you hit, when you hit goals to actually celebrate them, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, I think that they don't celebrate their wins. What are your thoughts on that? I, I 100% agree. And that's why I think that I, and, and by the way, I love Atomic Habits. I've read that book like three times. It's, uh, and, you know, practice a lot of the, the same uh, kind of habit trackers that are in there because they're just so valuable. And I love that. And, and that whole idea of, of, I think it comes from the idea of, of making sure that our goals are specific. Because how are you going to celebrate a win if you're not clear on your goals? How are you going to, uh, if, if your goal, say, is to lose weight? I want to lose weight. I want to I wanna get fit. But what does success look like in that case? If you don't know what success looks like, you're never going to feel that sense of accomplishment or success. But And, and why I love and, and, and advocate for the sport of triathlon is because it's associated with an accomplishment, a specific goal. There's a finish line that you could say, if I finish that, I'm accomplishing something that I never thought that I could do. And you could even work your way backward so that you can you can get that sense of accomplishment that you can't even escape the uh, the celebrating that success. If your goal is to finish a triathlon, you finish it. You know, you can't escape that. And and even on down the path, I mean, if, if that's too big of a goal for you, you can work your way backward to the very next step, which is if say you don't say you want to complete a triathlon, but you don't even know how to swim yet or you. Uh, maybe success looks like getting into the water for the first time and, you know, just learning to float for 30 seconds and doing that is, is, is an accomplishment. And if, if people write those steps down and get them very clear and celebrating each of those incremental successes is so important because once you look, once you arrive at that success um, it's kind of like, so if you look at it from the standpoint of sobriety, we celebrate, a lot of times it's celebrated in, in the rooms of AA with like a 30-day chip. Because once you look at yourself from 30 days, it's like, wow, I just achieved 30 days. That was something I didn't think that I could achieve 30 days ago. And now I'm here. You know, let's take the next day. Let's take that. And and so I think that it is important to celebrate our successes, just like, like you say, and make sure that our goals to get to and defining success is specific. Like for me, you know, we had our... I threw my own mental health summit uh, in April of last year. It's called "Today I Decide," because I, I believe the three the three most important words in the English language are "Today I Decide," because once you make a decision, like uh, I'm listening to, like we talked earlier, I'm listening to "Awaken the Giant" uh, within from Mr. Tony Robbins, you know, and it seems like me and him are think you know thinking some of the same things that you know who you are five years from now is going to be the decision you make in the next half hour. 
I and love it, that. You just break it down, you know, simple like that. And you started thinking about, you know, like if, when I looked at, you know, I, I was about to do five years in prison. Well, if I would have looked back five years, I would have seen, well, if I that's where it started. Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, if you start thinking like, you know, even like Tony says, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, think out of the box and throw the box away. Like he was talking about, he talked to, I don't know, it was Mr. Ed Milet. I love Ed. I love his podcast. And he was talking about a guy he's going to do triathlon. He's like, I I live in the state where you don't even have water. He's like, so <laughs> he made a decision to learn to do, you know, to, to be a triathlon. He's like, but we don't have any water around us. And he said, but I made it work. I found a pool. So I think mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing when, you know, once we make a decision, all we have to do is act upon that decision. Absolutely. One step at a time, you know, one pedal stroke, one, one, uh, one foot at one thing at a time. And it doesn't have to be a big step. Just like Mr. Clear says, you know, it's, it, it can just put you 1% beyond your comfort zone. And if you're doing that, every single day you're growing every single day now if you guys don't know anthony tony robbins you need to know tony robbins he was like at the very forefront well not the forefront but i mean because then you want because you like for me i'm a big history buff i go all the way back to andrew carnegie um, you know i go i go way back because i love to learn you know because the mind hasn't changed in 100 years mm -hmm. you know and think and grow rich you know and um, like I'm actually interviewing um, the author of the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad on Friday. Oh, cool. But you know, she put out an audio book I'm listening to with Mr. Greg Reed mm -hmm. about mindset. And I think everything is mindset. And I believe like you were talking about earlier, if a person's not sick, but think they are sick, they will get sick. You know, mm -hmm. that what you obsess over is what you eventually possess. So talk about talk about that. Reverse engineer it for health. How they can reverse engineer it and become healthy by acting and thinking healthy. Absolutely, that's a great great point. I love that that idea. What you focus on, where your focus goes, your energy flows. That's a Tony Robbins ism. And um, yeah, if, if everything, in my opinion starts with mindset starts with you know having that proper you know shaping your mind getting your mind healthy before you know getting your physical body healthy your physical body's health comes from you know your 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 mental health as well and so getting into the habits and those habits can be different for everybody but they just have to be empowering uh getting into those habits first thing every day and making sure that your morning is, you know, the, the time where you, the very first thing in the morning that you shape your mindset to start your day and win the day. That's, that's what at least I found to be one of the keys to success in, in reframing, you know, the mindset and ultimately getting that down to the health, to the health standpoint. It's really, again, getting clear on your goals, getting clear on who you want to be and deciding, as you say, today you decide, Decide that you make that decision to become the person that you want to be. And then you build your habits in the morning around that. And then you take the actions necessary to continue on that process throughout the course of the day. But yeah, it all starts with all starts with the proper mindset. All right. So now I've had many Navy SEALs, uh, Rangers, you know, high, 
high achievers. And um, one of the things, like my, my friend, his name, he, he, uh, his name is John McCaskill. He's a, a retired Navy SEAL commander. And he talks about how your rituals, evening and morning, will dictate your day. Now, Mr. James Clear says that, you know, we, everything we do, almost between 40 and 60% of what we do every day is a habit. So talk to us about Adam, what his nightly rituals are and what his daily rituals are to set him up for success. Absolutely. So I, I, I could do a lot better at night. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I, 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 I need to nail that down a little bit better. Uh, my morning routine has been, has been structured for many years now and, you know, it's helped me kind of grow to where I've wanted to be, but essentially my morning starts off when I take two hours because that's how important it is to me. Uh, two hours in the morning for, for myself. And what I'll do right when I wake up is I'll go downstairs and I'll drink a large glass of water. I'll drink, uh, um, and a little bit of the, the, um, uh, there's kind of these athletic greens that I'll, that I'll drink as well, but I'll make sure I get hydrated right away. And then I go back. And upstairs. that stuff tastes like ass. <laughs> it does. You're absolutely right. <laughs> I, I, I got friends, you know, they, I, like some of my friends, like one of my, one of my friends owns um, the largest, one of the largest supplement companies in the world, NutriBio. Mm -hmm. And he sent me some keto product and I was like, <laughs> it's not it's an acquired taste it it really is yeah i, I didn't say that you know empowerment has to be uh tasty <laughs> but it's uh but you know it's it's just one of those one of those things that that uh that became part of my routine it just and it gives me that that sense of health and um and then i go back upstairs and i do a, a round a, a four rounds of wim hof breathing which give it which i have found to and this is just anecdotal so this isn't i'm not a doctor or anything like that but i have found that from the standpoint of my immunity and my energy that that is one of the better things that i have done because i have um i've gotten sick less frequently since starting to do that a few years ago and uh, have just had much more energy and felt much more empowered after doing those rounds of breathing and oxygen is free I mean, it's the best way to start your day with a breathing practice that's empowering, where you fill your lungs and you allow your lungs to just be cleansed with all of the abundant oxygen we have around us. And while I'm doing that practice, I'm thinking about that very thing. I'm thinking about the abundance around me, about how fortunate I am to be breathing in all of this oxygen that's free to me, that I've just been graced with. And, and, and so that's kind of the priming exercise. And I know Tony Robbins talks a lot about that too. And as soon as I'm done with that, I'll meditate for about 12 minutes. And 12 minutes is important to me because uh, you start to get into a little bit more of the, uh, uh, the practice at around 10 minutes. At least that's where I go. So 12 gives me that extra two minutes of, of doing that. And my intention there is not to clear my mind because I really don't think that anybody can actually clear their mind. My intention there is just to observe and, and, and actively be an observer and not a catcher. In other words, I want to see my thoughts go, come and go like waves, but I don't want to grasp onto them and hold onto them and keep going. So that's the practice that I use, um, all while maintaining breathing and, and a mantra of relax and release. 
Uh, following that, uh, everybody's going to hate me for this because and nobody's going to want to try it. But I jump into a freezing cold shower um, where I do uh, my what Tony Robbins calls incantations, where I shout out and I, I yell out empowering things to me of what I want to be. So I will shout out that, you know, I'm a master storyteller. I ask quality questions, produce quality answers, and I keep going on down the line. With, uh, with things that are important to me and what I want to be. And then uh, and then I get out of the shower and I'm wide awake and I'm ready to kind of start my day. I do some reading after that, usually some empowering reading material. And I try to write about 500 words a day if I can. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's my morning. And exercise, of course. <laughs> Missed that part, but yeah. You know, and, and I think, you know, what the words that we say to ourselves are so important. Like, um, I love when I do my cardio, I have my audible. I love audible guys for 15 bucks a month. You can change your whole life for 15 bucks a month. That's right. Um, and I'm, I was listening to a book. I can't remember the guy's name. He wrote a book, I think from orphan to from homeless to billionaire. And, and he said, if you can just say five things to yourself, 20 or 30 times a day to, you know, it helps talk you up. Like for me, my five things are, you know, I'm healthy. I'm happy. I'm whole. You know, a lot of people don't really what being whole is, you know, I'm wealthy and I'm impacting millions of people. And I, if you say these things to yourself, eventually you start, you're, you start to believe it. And that's who you start to become just like, you know, I stopped saying the word can't, you know, like, like I have, um, like I said, Sharon Lecter coming on Friday and in the book, rich dad, poor dad, I, you know, they say that the only difference between poor people and rich people are the way they talk and the questions that they ask. So if you stop saying, you know, well, I can't afford it. Well, rich people say, well, how can I mm -hmm. afford yeah. it? But I think a lot of what you're talking about is, talking to yourself and people you know if people sing in the shower okay so you yell at it you yell at yourself in the shower <laughs> you know but you're getting something out of it you're getting empowered so when you get out of that shower you're ready to fight the world absolutely yeah and these are i mean these are tools you know that they don't do anything i mean they don't they don't do the work yeah. so yeah i emphasize i mean that's that's the priming that's these are the tools that help me start my day with an empowered mindset so that when i get on the bike trainer, for example, um, you know, when I was when I was building up and becoming a triathlete, uh, you know, I had a lot to learn and, and it was it was intimidating. It was uh, I was I was uh, a lot of times. I mean, I was thinking that I could never do that. I can never get to the Ironman World Championship. Once I learned what it took to get to the Ironman World Championship, that it would take a podium time where I would have to be running a seven, you know, seven minute mile after, on a marathon after a 112 mile bike. There was, I had no business doing that, but over the course of four years with consistency and discipline and practicing those empowering things and shaping my mindset first thing in the morning to want to achieve that, it became completely possible. And I was able to, in four years, make that, make that dream come true, going from a complete non-athlete without having ever really swam the distance or the length of a, of a pool without huffing and puffing to you know qualifying for the ironman world championship 
anything is possible. If I can do that, and if I can get sober, anybody can do it. <laughs> anybody can do whatever, you know, I, I believe, I truly believe anything's possible. Okay. So then, you know, if we're, we're going to be winding down now, but you know, you, you just said something that I think a lot of people were like, well, I can't do that. Um, but they don't become friends with people that do do that. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, um, like I've been doing podcasting, I think now three years, we've had 380 episodes, something stupid. Um, but I really didn't start elevating until I sat down with a gentleman named John Lee Dumas. And he gets a million downloads a month. You know, he makes 150 grand a month doing podcasting. But, you know, I started surrounding myself with people that are doing what I want to do. So did you do something like that where you started following people that were doing it, starting watching their videos, um, maybe even talking to somebody here and there? Because a lot of people, you know, I I hear and I, I can't remember who said it. Um, if you're around five millionaires, you're going to be the sixth. Mm-hmm. So, but now how about the same thing with trying to do what you did? Did you have to start getting into certain circles and learning? I did. And I didn't do it right away. And that was a shortcoming of mine uh, because, uh, because I was intimidated. I mean, at first, you know, it's when, when I'm sitting there and I'm unhealthy and I've never really even participated in, in, in two out of the three sports <laughs> that I'm trying to do, going, uh, trying to get it going to a group and and sit of triathletes and saying, "Hey, I want to be one of you guys," was was really intimidating for me. So I didn't tell anybody for a very long time. The only person I told was my wife, and so it was really just willpower. And I think that was a mistake because what I learned over time was that it was the most welcoming, supportive community that I could have ever asked for. So just kind of inching my way in through like Facebook groups or through so, uh, local meetups, I started meeting these people and I started relating to them. And what I found actually was that there is a pretty profound recovery community in within endurance sport. I mean, it attracts a lot of people like, like me. And, um, and I started to, so I started to build a community around that. And over time I became one and that's when my mindset my mindset shifted into knowing that I, I was a triathlete, not just an aspiring triathlete. And I do that even, even now I'm, I'm more inclined to join groups that will help me to become empowered and that I can give back to as well. Um, in, in, uh, uh, in my, in, in how I try and level up now. So now this is the last question that I ask, um, what are you doing now and how can we support whatever you got going on? Well, thank you. Um, yeah, so I have a book coming out. Uh, and that's what I've been working on for the past uh, year or so has been getting this book released, which is coming out on February 8th. I think by the time this airs uh, on the podcast that the book will be out on Amazon. Uh, so pick it up, pick it up there. And uh, what What's I'm, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's called uh, Shifting Gears from Anxiety and Addiction to a Triathlon World Championship. And it shares my story of recovery and uh, recovering from and living with anxiety and overcoming fear to uh, uh, to really live an abundant life. And I am also, uh, you know, working on a number of different uh, platforms for uh, for triathletes to level up their 
to level up, level up themselves in the sport and um, uh, primarily beginners, but I really want to help people like me who are intimidated when they first started out to learn about the sport in a safe and healthy way and get started the right way without burning themselves out, without getting injured. So they can look for the book. They can look at uh, uh, www.shiftinggearsbook.com. And for anything else related to me, they can look at uh, www.adamhilltry.com. All one word. Now, I I know you sent me a copy of, of the, it, the book. I mean, a little bit of the book, and I can't wait to read it. Um, I, I'll probably read it tonight before I go to bed. So, bro, I just want to say thank you for coming on today. Um, I truly appreciate you. Um, you know, like I said, I don't know crap about um, triathletes, but now you got me piqued my interest. So I'm sure I'm going to go that down that deep, dark, you know, and and tried that wormhole <laughs> and find out all about it. So I just want to say thank you and for taking the time out to hang out with me today. Well, the pleasure was all mine. I'm so grateful for this opportunity and, and so thrilled with what you're doing out there too. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you. So guys, remember, definitely check out Adam. Check out everything he's doing. want to thank our sponsors, Operation Veteran Freedom, helping veterans, you know, when they get out of, out of, out of the military, sometimes we don't have your have a mission, so they help you get another mission. Um, if you guys love coffee, please check it out, Vertical Momentum Coffee. Um, and the new book, it just dropped a lot of bonuses on it. So definitely check it out. And I just want to say thank you for always being with us. Uh, please leave a comment uh, for Adam, for myself. As you guys know, I don't get paid for doing this. So if you could just do that for me, that would be my payment. And guys, just remember, vertical momentum, the only way to go is but up. Catch you on the flip, guys. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.